Man's identity and man's purpose is intricately connected to our creator. And we recognize that. You know, we know that to be the truth and we believe that wholeheartedly you know, deep within us. And so any attempt to live without God is going to lead to a ruinous end. Any attempt to live your life without God is going to lead to an emptiness with sorrows that are unimaginable. Psalm 8 highlights the idea of man's role in light of or in view of God's majestic handiwork. And so we confess and acknowledge to one another that you know, we as creatures of God are much more than just an animal that is created by God. And so you know, we are much more than just some living thing. We are made in the likeness of God. And you have a couple passages in Genesis that clearly you know, make that bold statement, that true statement. When God said in, in the beginning of time, you know, let us make man and let us make him in a certain way. And he says, in our image, according to our likeness. And then it is again repeated when you have the genealogy of Adam and following in verse 1 of chapter 5 when it says, he made him in the likeness of God. So that's what God did. God did this when he made you and me. Both male and female are made in the image of God. Both male and female are made in the likeness of God. I believe this with my whole heart. And I believe that we are more than what we see with our eyes. In the Holy Scriptures, God gives us some insight into our makeup what we are, who we are, and maybe what we could say, what makes us who we are. And so I think I have an understanding of what that is based upon God's word, but I would be arrogant if I failed to acknowledge the fact that I understand fully the complexity of our total being, who we are, what we are. Tonight's study is going to be a bit of a word study as we try to delve into this in, in a, a brief way based upon what scriptures gives us. And it is an effort to try to address a subject that someone uh, called and asked me to address. But let's begin with the fact that God is spirit. God is spirit, but God is not flesh and bones. And we have a couple passages that are very, very plain to us. For example, in John 4, 24, there as Jesus is talking and teaching the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, Jesus tells her, God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Of course, our focus tonight is on, on the idea, how does this relate to us, our, our purpose, our being, our existence? But it has to begin with God. It has to begin with the creator. And, and what, it, what is he? What is he like? And so we are told God is spirit. And we are also told that he is not flesh and bones. That is, a spirit is not flesh and bones. And you turn over to Luke 24, verse 39. And it's on one of the occasions where you have Jesus' appearance you know, you know, with his apostles 
after his resurrection, and he basically says, it's really me, guys. And he goes on to say, a spirit does not have flesh and bones. I have not, you know, I'm still in the flesh. It was a bodily resurrection. See, look at me. You can still see the wounds in, in my body. So if we're, if we're made in the likeness of God, and you begin to, well, what is God like? Well, God is spirit, and God is not flesh and bones. So God is not like us. We're like him. And so clearly there is overwhelming evidence to us as believers that we recognize fully that God exists, you know, God is real, and that evidence points to the fact that this God of ours, this creator of us, is one who is omnipotent and omniscient. And so what can you, how can you compare anything to God? What can you compare to God? Well, in one sense, no one can be compared to God. And nothing is comparable to God. And clearly some of that sentiment is brought out in the Old Testament when talking about, you know, there's none like God, and particularly when you see in the contrast with idolatry. And so in one sense, I would suggest to you that God is beyond our senses of observation, you know, you know, don't misunderstand me. There's evidence for God, and we see that evidence, and we, ra- and we understand it, and we, in a rational way, take that in, and we come to a strong, bold faith about God. But on the other hand, God is beyond our physical senses of, of, of observation. Why is that? Well, because God is invisible to our eyes. And at the same time, though, He's invisible to me, and yet at the same time, he has manifested himself, he's manifested himself to the world through various means, through various ways. Throughout history, God spoke, revealed his will, and clearly manifested his power, his existence. All of that is part of who God is. I say all of that simply to kind of make this statement, and that is, Jehovah God is an awesomely complex, eternal being who created male and female in his image. I can can read God's inspired word and I can begin to have some insight into who he is and understand that with, with reverence and knowledge and faith and love. But, you know, I am limited to what God does say in what God has shown himself to be. And so I can't see him, but by faith I know he is. He is a complex eternal being that is beyond our physical observation. And so we begin to think, okay, how does, the, how does God's word reveal him to us as he speaks and does his work? What are some of the, some of the attributes or characteristics or, or traits that kind of begin you know, portray to us who this God is? We can't see him, you know, but who is he and what is he like? And you think about just the multitude of of knowledge that is found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that describe to us how God is love and light, how God is holiness and justice, you know, God is anger and compassion, God is patient and kind, and God is forgiving and forbearing. You go on and on, you look at all of those descriptions of God. I can't see him with my naked eyes, I can't see him physically, but as God has revealed himself through history and through his word and revelation, 
you know, I begin to see his character and his trait. And so here is this being who is my God and my, my creator and now my father by spiritual adoption. And yet, you know, he does not have a physical body like you and me. You know, he's not made out of the matter of which we are made. He's not made from the dust of the ground. But he made that dust. And then he made us out of that dust and shaped us and gave us our lives. And, and he says, okay, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm going to take this clay and start shaping him, he says, I'm going to shape him and I'm going to make him somehow in our likeness, in God's likeness. So we are somehow like this complex, immortal spirit, eternal one, you know, that is a spirit but not in a physical body. And all those attributes of deity that we come to know and appreciate about him, all those attributes are to be found in us as well as we grow and mature in our faith. And so let's kind of talk more now about what, do, what are some of the things the Bible actually does say about man now. Okay, we understand, okay, God is a spirit. He's not physical. And we have all these attributes of God that, okay, reveal to his person, his essence to us. And we are to seek to be like him by faith. Walk you know, in his steps through Jesus Christ. But clearly, when you turn over to Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, there is this dual nature of man that is described. Now, verse 28 is a very sobering, sobering, rightfully sobering passage that we need to take to heart. And so Jesus says to to the multitude, he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So here's Jesus, the son of God, the very image, the, the exact representation of his father, who tells us that there is this dual aspect about us. We are creatures of God, made in the likeness of God, but you know, we are not just body. We are not just a physical being. We, we have a body and we have a soul. So when God brought man to life, think about that, you know, what, a, what an amazing thing that, that is. Like, wow, God spoke. And out of the ground, out of this dust, you know, you know, you have clay being shaped and molded, you know, to become Adam. And when God did that, God made man in, in such a way that he became a living being or a living soul, as some versions say in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. So man is more than just a living thing. You know, you know there's a lot of living things that God had made, you know, and presented to Adam there at the time of creation. But, but Adam, man, is so much more than all of that life form. Man is described as a living being or a living soul. 1 Corinthians 15 says, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. Zechariah 12, 1 simply states, God is the one who forms the spirit of man within him. 
Or as in Acts 17, 28, when Paul's there in Athens and, and is trying to reveal to them the true and living one, the creator of heaven and earth, and he talks about, well, even your poets, even, even the, your, your, your poets of the day, he says, described man as God's awesome. Even they recognize there's a sense that man is the product of God. And he uses that you know, in his teaching the truth about who God is, who, what man is, and what the relationship ought to be. And so God has formed the spirit within us. God is spirit, and he gave us a spirit, not just a body. And, and in doing so, you know, he made us like him. Are we him? No, we're not him. But in some way, he gave us some aspect of his likeness, of his image. You know? And so, yes, yeah, so we are spirit beings in a physical body. Paul describes this kind of two-part component of our existence, who we are, what we are, and what we are that makes us who we are. In 2 Corinthians chapter 16, he uses, you know, he uses this language when saying the outer man versus the, the inner man. So he uses a little, bit, a little bit different phrase, you know, different words, but he's still talking about, okay, you and I, there's more to us than just what we see. There's so much more to us than what we see outwardly. And so Paul calls it the outer man and the inner man. You have this exhortation. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, and, and that is so real to us, we see it all around us. We experience that ourselves. You know, the decline, the, the decay, and the frailty of our physical flesh, that which is clay, and it starts breaking up, down and breaking apart. And so that's so real to us, how our outer man is decaying. And, but he goes on you know, to say, by the Holy Spirit, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. As one is declining, he says the other is increasing. Or at least it can, it should be. It should be renewed as the other is failing. And so different phraseology here, you know, where Jesus talks about body and soul. Paul talks about outer and inner parts of our existence. Jesus, I think, you know, kind of refers to this you know, clearly in Matthew 26 when he's in the garden and he goes to, you know, those three apostles and speaks to them about, you know, how they're falling asleep and they need to stay awake. And he talks about how, you know, the, the, there's a willingness of the spirit, but then there's this weakness of the flesh. Once again, so you've got the two present in the sense, a bit of a struggle there, you know, uh, and, and so it manifests itself in, di- in different ways at different times in our life, but still there is that two-part component. And so while living on earth, here we are, you know, we're all here still. So while living on the earth, man's body and man's spirit feels so inseparable. Think about that. Right now, <laughs> You know, those two are so intricately connected. Don't, doesn't it feel that way? <laughs> you know. And because that's how God made us. He made us that way. And at the same time, 
the Holy Scriptures reveal to us, there's going to come a time and there's going to come a day what's going to happen. Those two are going to separate. James 2 is really talking about faith, but uses the body and death to illustrate the kind of faith that we need to have on earth. And so it talks about how physical death occurs when the spirit departs, when the spirit leaves. You know, and it's hard for us to, you know, what's that, what's that feel like? Well, we don't know what it feels like until we experience it ourselves. You know, we have, we have watched loved ones pass away, and we know, you know and, and, and there's a sense you do even recognize they're not there anymore. But while they're alive, they were so intricately joined together. Because that's what God made us to be. But there's going to become a day that they will separate because these are two parts of who we are. The two components. You know, do I fully comprehend and can I fully explain that? No. But I recognize that. I believe that because that's what God has said. Stephen, as he's dying by being stoned, you remember, as he sees the Lord standing the right hand of the throne of heaven, do, do you remember what he asked Jesus to do? He says, receive my spirit. He says, Lord, receive my spirit now. Stephen knew the time was at hand for that separation to take place. And he's asking Jesus to, to take care of him, to be there with him when that happens. So we know that, but that's complex, is it not? To think about that, being made like God, but how can we, we can't compare ourselves to God. You know, you know God's not like us in that sense. You know, let me say it correctly there. You know, God's not like us, but we're like him, but then he's not like me. And how, is that, could be, how could that be? Well, because we, we are made in such a way, there's a dual aspect to who we are and what we are. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that inner man, though. Because the Bible kind of talks some along that line. Not just to contrast the physical versus the spiritual, but let's talk a little bit about that inner man. Because it is that inner man that is described in by words such as soul and spirit. Distinguishing between these two words is extremely difficult. <laughs> yeah. It's not that easy. God can distinguish it. <laughs> Even his word has the power to distinguish it. But can we always explain it? At least I can't. For example, in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, you're familiar with that passage, it talks about the sword of the spirit, God's sword, and the, the power of that sword to work on, the, on, on men and women. He says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Well, how sharp is that? Well, he, he describes it. It's so sharp that it's able to pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit. 
of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You have some simple definitions as you look up there on the screen. The word suke is the word that is translated soul, usually in your New Testaments. And pneuma is the word that is usually translated spirit in your New Testaments. And you've got some simple definitions you know, that are, are given to us to tell us what these words mean. And you can begin to see why it's, a diffi- it's difficult to always distinguish exactly the variance between these two. The usage of these, both of these words sometimes are overlapping and sometimes even somewhat synonymous. For example, they both can sometimes refer to, in the sense, the idea of your natural life. The soul can be used in that way, and even the word spirit, to describe life in in this broadest broadest sense. A couple examples of that, Matthew 2.20 uses it that way, and Hebrews 11.11 as well. But then at the same time, both of those words also can refer to the immaterial, invisible part of man that we call the inner man. Both of them can be applied to that. You know, you see, for example, in Matthew 10, in Matthew 10, you use the word soul to describe the inner part of you. But in Luke 8, 55, it uses the word spirit to describe the inner part of you. And I just simply say that. And you, you, know, you could do your own research and, and do all of the, you know, looking at different you know, usages of these words. Just simply use it. It's not that easy to all, all the under, fully understand and explain. But you know what? God does. God knows. And if, if God right here in person explaining that to you, you would understand it. Yeah. So the thing is, we are this. Our inner man is, is described as soul and spirit. And yet at the same time, there is no description to us, what does that look like? <laughs> you know, what does the spirit look like? What does the soul look like? And we are given no you know, descriptions that you know, we, in the sense, can visualize. But just because we cannot see it does not mean it's not real. You and I cannot see God, but we see the evidence of him. He is real. You and I do not see wind, but we see the evidence that wind is a real thing. We feel it to our senses. And the same thing with our being, the inner part of us that is described as soul and spirit or soul or spirit. Just because we cannot see it, it is real. And it is that part of us that is housed in the vessel of our bodies, the command, the command in Matthew 22, verse 37, the command in Matthew 22, verse 37, where, you know, Jesus, in talking to the multitude, gives, answer the question regarding the greatest command, and he, he says to them that it is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This command to love God in this way, you have three words, heart, soul, and mind, addresses, I believe, the depth of man's inner being, the complexity of who we are. We are heart, soul, and mind. Back in Genesis chapter 2, when God created Adam and Eve, brought male and female into existence, he created them as free moral agents. How do I know that? Well, he created a circumstance, a situation, an opportunity that these beings that are in the image of their creator, somehow made in the likeness of God, these spiritual beings in this flesh, you know, are going to have to make a choice. They're going to have to choose what they're going to do with what God has given them, what God has said to them. And so man from the beginning was made in such a way that we would think, we would reason, and we would have to make choices. We'd have to choose paths along the way. And our actions would have a spiritual component to it. And so therefore our actions are not simply inconsequential you know what we do with our bodies does matter because there is a spiritual component to that because we are both body and soul or body and spirit we are outer and inner and so you think about that idea of how you know this idea of the soul and the part and the mind of our inner existence our inner being and how it would involve this idea of our wills and our purpose. You know, within us, is, is you find the seat of that will or that purpose. And go back to the idea of thing, you know, divine nature, you know, think, there's an aspect of divine nature that dwells in all of us. Whether we are following God or not, God has made all men in his image. So there is a, there's a nature of God, there's an aspect of God's nature that dwells in all living beings. But at the same time, there is a divine character that is to be cultivated and, and, and grown and present uh, when it comes from, from the idea of we're called to function in a certain way with our heart, mind, and soul. You know, we all have an aspect of God in us because God made us in his image, but at the same time, we are to cultivate attributes in the sense that nature of God, go back to the characteristics we introduce, love and light, you know, forbearance and forgiveness, uh, compassion, even anger. You know, you think about all of these different attributes and characters of God that we are to emulate as we reflect him in our life. And so these terms, heart, soul, and mind, are descriptive of your inner self. Now Mark, in his account, you know, talks about, all adds might, you know, that of strength, and, and that could be inner strength, but also that could entail as well physical strength as, as you use that. But it is the spirit, spirit of us it is the heart the soul and the mind of us that perceives things it's what it's what reflects 
and desires and feels. And you can look at some passages that illustrate that. Mark, Mark 2 there talks about uh, Jesus you know, perceived something in his spirit. <laughs> you know, so it's the spirit that perceives. It is the, it's the spirit that will desire. It is the spirit that feels and I, I emphasize this because what, I, I'm, what I'm trying to, you know, to for, get us to just kind of chew a little bit on is this idea that our inner workings is so much more than the workings of our brain function. Our brains are part of it. But I think it's more than just the, the electronic you know, messages and sensory things that are going back and forth in our brain so that our bodies work and so we can think. You know, it's more than just brain function, this heart, soul, and mind. Also, it's more than simply physical, sensual urges, physical desires that are God-ordained. It's more than just that. You know, there are physical things that are at work. But you know, once again, we are intricately connected from the between the body and the spirit while on earth, and there's come the time that's going to separate. But it's it's you, the inner you that does the the real thinking. It's the it's the inner you that does the real reasoning and reflecting, and even desiring. It's not just a physical thing. There's a spiritual component too, and it's also the inner you that has feelings. Emotion. So therefore, you think of that idea. How, and so therein, the seat of an individual's complex personality comes into play here. Do I fully understand all of this? No, I don't. But clearly, you know, our personality is not simply rooted in, in the physical body. It's so much more than that. It's so much deeper than that. Somehow, it's rooted in those words when we're told, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Go back to, you know, to Hebrews 4.12. You think about this question. We talked about the word of God not only is able to, to divide between soul and spirit, but it goes on also to discern between thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, aren't intentions thoughts? Maybe I'm simple-minded. But... God says, I distinguish between that. I, I make distinctions. I, I, I divide and, I, and, and I'm, able to pers- I'm able to look at all of that. You know, you know, what are the definitive distinctions between thoughts and intention? And we can give some definitions, but the bottom line, at least in my thinking, it, it all starts coming, you know, you know, weaving together. I mean, it's, they all work together somehow. But God knows. God knows all of those distinctions. The distinctions within us. You know, we are amazing creatures. And we're amazing creatures because God made us that amazing. But there's other creatures that are amazing too in the universe, in, in, in this earth that God made, that we, we look and we, and we just, and we are fascinated by, uh, you know, the world of life. But you are so much more amazing than all those other amazing things because of what's within you. This idea of, 
You, you are both physical and spiritual. There's an outer part to you and there's an inner part to you. And the inner part to you is complex and amazing and wonderful. And you go back to this command in Matthew chapter 20, uh, chapter 10, no, 22, excuse me, Matthew chapter 22, and where you have this call for loving obedience. Yeah. Loving obedience to our God. What, what, what will that require of me? Well, it's going to require a whole lot more than cold rituals. It's going to require so much more than me going through an outward form of something alone in and of itself. It's so much more than that. What, is going to, what does that cause upon me to use soul and spirit? To love God. Well, how do I do that? How do I love God with my soul and spirit? Well, you do it with your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your might, as the, the other harmonizing passage says. Think about that. When you love God and you, and you obey God because you love him, it requires our rational thoughts. It takes us using rational thinking. That's not all, is it? Yes, it requires our ra- rational thoughts, but at the same time, it requires our determined will. It's not just a rational thought that I have. I must have a will that's determined to execute upon those thoughts. Along with that, then you have this idea of dis- a, a discerning conscience. And how that comes into play. The idea of of will and purpose working together with your personality. And so you've got a rational thinking. You've got a determined will at work. And you've got a discerning conscience laboring through all of this. And then you add on top of that your genuine emotions. Real, sincere feelings. Not just physical senses, real inner feelings. With that rational thinking and determined will and a discerning conscience. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to love him, as we often simply say, with our total self. You know, with the outer man and the inner man. But when you, when you love him with your inner man, it's so much more than just, you know, you know, some simple explanation. There's a complexity to that. It's a simple call, but it's a huge task on our part. God wants our bodies to serve him. And God wants our souls to serve him. And God wants our spirit to serve him. And that's going to require of me my mind, my heart, and my might. We are amazing creatures. In my attempt to try to answer this question and, and discuss this subject is inadequate, I know. But what man truly can explain the amazing handiwork of God, the creator, when he made a living, a living being, a living soul in his image and then is able to take that one 
who is lost and recreate him, not physically, but recreate his inner self. So now he's conformed to the image of the only begotten son. You and I are so much more than just what we see. So when we look at each other, you know, we are so much more than what we see with our physical sight. You know, we are beings of God made in his likeness. Complex beings that, you know, we spend a lifetime trying to understand ourselves and understand one another in the way that God knows us. But it's worth the effort. It's worth the endeavor. Because all men are made in the image of God. Not physically, but spiritually. And that spiritual aspect involves heart, mind, and soul. And that's what we have to give him. Our all. To be right with God, though, we have to take our broken selves, our unclean selves, and through God's care and through God's provision and God's way of salvation, we must wash ourselves through Jesus Christ. If you've not done that, we want to encourage you to do that tonight. If you believe Jesus to be the Christ, you believe that with all your heart. You believe him to be the son of God. And you must. Without faith, it's impossible you know, to please God. Without faith in God and in Christ and who he is and his resurrection, we can't be saved. We must believe that. But if you do, but you've not called upon him to save you, why not tonight? Confess your faith in Jesus Christ with your mouth. Repent of all the sins you've committed in your life. And in that repentance, humbly submit in obedience to the command to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If you do that, you will be a new person. Totally new. You'll look the same. But you won't be the same. And that's God's power. If we can help you anyway spiritually, please come now while we stand and sing the song that is selected. <laughs>